Welcome to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling, and today with Derek Reimer, I'm answering listener questions. We cover topics ranging from how to implement feature flags in your SaaS app, combating imposter syndrome, whether to use the stair-step method, and more amazing listener questions from listeners just like you. But before we do that, I want to let you know about MicroConf US next April 2023. Leanna Patch and I will be emceeing. We have amazing speakers, Claire Swellentrop, Dev Basu, Patrick Campbell. We have workshops. It's going to be great. It starts April 16th and runs through the 18th in downtown Denver, Colorado. Head to microconf.com slash Americas if you want to find out more and buy a ticket. Tickets are on sale now. They are going fast. I'd love to see you there. And with that, let's dive into listener questions. Grimer, you're back on the show. Thanks for having me back. By popular demand, and we're answering listener questions today. Woohoo. Let's do it. What led to this is there's a lot of listener questions all of a sudden, and I'm not exactly sure. I think it's the YouTube channel ticking up and just more people getting interest, but a lot more questions than in the past. And the interesting thing is I started going through them and I'm like, God, I answer the video and audio first. The first question we're about to answer, I was like, oh, you know, I have thoughts on this, but you know who answered this really well is Derek. And then the, there's the second one. I was like, oh, Derek would actually probably answer this better than I would. So then once I had two, I was like, yeah, I could build a whole show around this, right? So I pulled off several questions and we're diving into them today. Very nice. Yeah, I always enjoy these episodes because I think you always invite me to the the board where you're working on, um, you know, organizing your listener questions. And I can see the ones in the Derek column and there's just enough volume. And like, so all of these, on the one hand, sort of easy to answer because they're like things that that you kind of know I would have thoughts on. So that's, that's always fun. Yeah, right in your wheelhouse. So we'll kick off with our first question from Alan, and we'll roll that here. Hi, Rob. It's Alan from Appiable here. I have a question regarding uh, SaaS products. So we currently only have one plan in our SaaS product, and this means when a customer logs in, they get access to all of the features that are there. Whereas we look to add a second and third plan to our product, I'm wondering if there's any software out there that can help us to toggle features on and off, for example, to record which customers on which plan, to upsell the customer to, to a new plan. I can, of course, ask my developers just to program all this stuff, but it's probably going to take, you know, two, three weeks, something like that. So maybe we could do this quicker. So just to be clear, he's talking about adding plans, and these are often we call them pricing tiers, but yeah, pricing plans, right? And he's saying, how can we toggle features based on plans and record which customers are on which plan? What do you think, sir? You you may have done this once or twice, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this a number of times, yeah. So, I mean, I think kind of thinking about structuring your billing engine, in a sense, and how your billing engine marries up with your SaaS product. My thinking on this has has evolved over the years, but certain parts have stayed the same. So, like, years ago, you know, before Stripe had, you know, a nice, sophisticated subscription billing engine where they could track all your plans and all that kind of stuff, you know, we used to build all that stuff in the app, and you would own the, the cron job that hit the payments API and charge the customer and all that kind of stuff. Those were the days. Those were the days. Thankfully, we're, we're beyond those. There's, you know, Stripe subscriptions or Stripe billing, I think they call it. There's Chargebee and Recurl. There's a bunch of different products that have different strengths and weaknesses that you could um, 
delegate that out to. So these days, what I do is use Stripe billing, keep it simple, put my plans there. And then there's always a certain amount of state that I want synchronized with my local database. And thankfully, Stripe has, I mean, their API has definitely gotten bigger and more complicated over time. So that's one thing to, to watch out for. But, you know, fundamentally, they have webhooks that you can set up listeners for and, you know, listen for, you know, when a subscription activates on a new plan or if, or if you're using like Stripe's billing portal thing, which I've been making use of that with SavvyCal and it's pretty elegant. So I don't have to write the code that allows the customer to go in and change their plan level. That's what I was going to ask. So if I'm in SavvyCal and I go to change my plan level, is there an iframe embedded in SavvyCal or do I actually go to a stripe.com domain and that's how I change it? Yeah, it's a full redirect. And I think because okay. I think people have just gotten used to that enough. You know, even when you're like buying something on on a Shopify website, it kind of like redirects from the fully designed thing over to kind of a checkout flow that looks more stripey, looks more like kind of, you know, stripped down. So so yeah, I think these days like using the customer portal is like I, I don't hear any customers complaining about it or or feeling weird about getting redirected to Stripe. So yeah, and that has like the interface for updating credit card, changing plan, adding their tax ID number, all that kind of stuff. So it's nice not to have to own any of that code. And then when those changes happen, you know, we receive a webhook from Stripe saying a change happened and there's like products and prices in Stripe. There's like the product would be the basic plan and then prices you might have one for your annual tier and your monthly tier, say. So I kind of keep a mapping of those like basic plan and savvy cal maps to this price ID and this interval maps to this product or whatever. And then when those changes come in, I just update the record in the database that maps to that subscription. And then you can use that anywhere you need to, anywhere where it makes sense to sort of gate a feature. You can just check that flag without having to call out to Stripe, right? That's why you want some of this state synchronized in your database. I always aim for minimal amount of state synchronization. So like I don't have their list of invoices, for example, in my database because if I need to show them that, like... I can either send them to a Stripe UI or make an API request, and it doesn't matter if it's slow. But for things like choosing to show a certain feature, you're going to want that to be fast. And so when you go to actually in your code to show a feature or not, do you use any type of, of I think of Rails having a, a Ruby gem, and there's a bunch of them for like feature toggling, right? And I'm sure Laravel has them, and every framework probably has them. Do you do that, or are you more like hard coding, where it's like, if this plan, then blah, if that plan, then blah? Yeah, I have a mix of this, honestly. Like, So I have kind of one place in the code base where I can ask the question, does this user have access to this certain feature? And so I have one place where a lot of that logic lives that's kind of explicitly tied to a plan. Then there's some things, sometimes you, you have a feature where it's like, normally this is on the premium plan only, but I want the ability to enable it for a particular user without moving them fully to the premium plan. And so for me, it's always a case-by-case -case basis. On It's a judgment call when you're, when you're architecting it, you know? But if you know it's going to be something that you might want to enable, then I usually opt for the pattern of, of having a flag like on the user record that you can set explicitly so you're not purely relying on the plan level that they're on, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because I remember we used to have, let's say, beta or early access individual features with yeah. complicated features, especially in Drip, where it's like, this one, it might have a bug, like, or it might be a little janky, but it, it's a whole new UI or it's a whole new something. And we wanted to test it out, like in our own accounts, and then we'd get, who you know, it was Brennan Dunn or Ruben Gomez or just like a Drip friendly, a friend of Drip, 
And we would say, do you want to check this out? Yep. So we'd feature flag. So that's how you were doing it at the time. Yeah. And I actually, so for that, for, for like pre-releasing a feature, currently I make use of a library for doing this. There's a, there's one for Elixir Phoenix called Fun with Flags that is just like <laughs> a little, a little subsystem where, uh, and they even give me a little administrative UI that I put behind a, you know, behind special authentication mm. so that just us admins can, can go access that and just say for this user ID, enable this feature or for, you could even do things with it like, for 50% of users, enable this feature if you want to like oh, that's gradually cool. roll something out. Yeah, that's neat. It makes sure that it like loads the flags in memory so that you're not doing a bunch of database calls every time you want to ask the question of who can see this feature. And yeah, I, I make heavy, heavy use of this. I mean, sort of part of our methodology when we start working on features, we break them up into small chunks and we'll often start shipping little pieces of functionality into production from day one and set up the feature flags. So usually that's kind of the first step is like figuring out what flag this is going to be under. And then, you know, we add that to our, anytime we're passing like a user object around, we have kind of a little object of flags on there so we can just check it wherever we need to. And yeah, that's, that helps us really push forward quickly on things and get it into prod and de-risk things. So, Right. And that's the big advantage of that approach, right? Because, you know, someone who's been writing software for 20 years hears that and thinks, oh my gosh, pushing stuff into prod that fat, that much, right? Do you QA and this and that? But it's like, no, it's like 20 lines of code that I wrote today and I'm going to push it in and we have massive unit test coverage. And so the odds of having a regression are not huge. And then that's, I remember feeling so good about launching big features back in the day. I'm assuming you feel that way in Savical because it's like, no, this code, 90% of this code's been in the app for three weeks. So it's like nothing, nothing bad has happened, right? Yeah, totally. It's a re- real nice way to do it. So Alan, there you go. Maybe even more than, than you asked for. You were talking about plans, but we also talked about, I mean, the whole idea of being able to, the fun with flags thing, we could roll it out to 10%, 20% or individual users. Like that is invaluable. And if you've never built a SaaS app as a developer or product person, you just don't think about that stuff, right? But if you have downloadable software, if you have developer component, if you have an app in an app store, like none of that, I guess maybe an app in an app store would, but the others, like it wouldn't make a difference. And so in SaaS specifically, this is where like having experience building multiple products is so helpful. So thanks for the question, Alan. I hope that was helpful for you. Our next question is from Wyatt, and it's about how to communicate product needs to a technical co-founder. Hey, Rob. I'm a non-technical founder that has a technical co-founder that I just brought on board. I'm the one on the team currently that has the industry knowledge necessary to understand our customer needs the best and most deeply. We have early product market fit with our current iteration with several thousand in in MRR. And we're starting to build more complicated features that are really going to start to separate us from competitors. And these features, I think, will be critical to our success, not only from a product side, but also leveraging these in our marketing. I guess my question is, how do you build slash design slash mock up product features where I know the customer best and what they're going to want and describing like the product interface to my technical co-founder and how it should be laid out the best. Is this something where you would like draw on the back of a napkin and send to them, you know, mock something up and I guess it would be one of the more famous mock-up tools or like how do I guess, how do I go zero to one 
best with my technical co-founder on how to start initial designs that end up getting built by him in the end and kind of communicate that properly with him on what to build, how to build it in the best way that I know like our end user would want. I'm kind of currently just doing this via our Slack communication or Zoom meetings. And I feel like this cannot be the best way to do it because I'm sure he's interpreting things that I'm saying by just the, you know, the words coming out of my mouth, essentially. There's got to be a better way, I feel like, to communicate some of like the, the product needs of, of our customer better. Long-time listener, first-time caller, appreciate any feedback you might have. Derek, you are a technical co-founder and also someone who has had to communicate product needs, oftentimes to designers, to developers, to your dummy co-founder over here when we were building, <laughs> building Drip. No. How do you, so how do you think about this question? Yeah, so I think, I would say generally I'm a fan of of the low fidelity mockups. I think Jason Fried talks about like using a Sharpie instead of a ballpoint pen, you know, as kind of a way to, to picture this. So that way you, you don't accidentally get to more specific than you intended to, you know, it kind of forces you to keep it, keep it more high level. You know, I think there's digital tools to do this, tools like Balsamic and I don't know what other tools are out there these days for... Balsamic and Figma are the two that I think of. Okay, yeah, and Figma, I think oftentimes becomes more high fidelity because you can do pixel perfect designs in there, but I bet you can probably also just do kind of boxes and arrows and stuff. But yeah, and that being said, like I wouldn't get too bogged down with with tool choices in this case. Like I'm, to be honest, mostly if I need to do this, I'm sketching it on paper and taking a picture of it and pasting that picture in the ticket. Remember all the whiteboard pictures? I still have yeah. 20, 30, 40 whiteboard pictures of UIs that we would sketch out. And they, yeah. were, they were terrible. I can't draw on a damn whiteboard. And so none of the lines are, but that's what you're saying. It didn't matter. Yeah. We just need, we're like, well, let's put a text box here and a drop down list. And then we need something blah, blah, blah here, right? Totally. And there's one other thing I want to mention, because I'm, I'm getting a sense from the question that he may be experiencing some miscommunications with with his co-founder, because it sounds like whatever they're doing right now is kind of, it's breaking at times. It's not working super well. And to me, this feels like a case where like, for, so for some of these complicated features he's talking about where, you know, there's, there's a lot of nuance and information to communicate and voice a customer to bring in and like try to capture it all. Like, I don't know if they're mainly trying to do this over Slack or, or other, you know, project management tools, but this feels like a case where a shared whiteboarding session would, would do them serve them really well. You know, we had so many of these building drip and it's like you get to combine the strengths that you both bring to the table. Like I'm not sure who's more of the designer between the two of them because a technical co-founder isn't necessarily like the best UX person on the team. So it just depends on who has a better better sense for those things, but I would bet you that if you put your heads together and kind of hashed out things and got on the same page in front of a whiteboard, you'd save a lot of time over trying to do that over writing. Like the alternative is go asynchronous and just write, write a lot and provide a lot of context, which I know teams like Basecamp are a big fan of that approach, you know, and like you write these, these giant documents where you try to brain dump everything you're thinking into one place, which is cool for other people to go be able to go back and read it. So there's some nice archival benefits to that. But I would say if you're trying to move quickly and, and not get too bogged down, like a synchronous in-person or virtual whiteboarding or however you want to do it could be really helpful. I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And, and I think to take it a step further, once you do that whiteboard session, you take a picture of it or you have your screenshot of it and you slap that into, we used GitHub issues, but whatever, hopefully you have some type of project management or issue management thing that you're working in. 
whether it's Jira or what's the one you use that's really good looking? Linear. Linear. Yeah, the new you know? hotness. So certainly, yeah, the new hotness. Any features, bugs, you know, that you're that are you're thinking about should be individually documented. But when you're this early, I think you should be extremely agile and fast moving. Lowercase a on that agile. And you can have a conversation that's like, oh, we realize that customers want this setting and it requires two checkboxes and a drop-down list. I would log in to GitHub issues, open an issue, and I would say, we're going to add two checkboxes and a drop-down list. I mean, this is what I'm typing, right? It was like four sentences tops. And then sometimes if you were going to build it, it was done because you knew the architecture. If you were handing it to a developer who maybe didn't know, you'd be like, these are going to pipe into this model and go into this, I'm using the wrong words, but <laughs> this, this aspect of the ORM in Rails, but no, yeah, right? But you're like, it's this database table, blah, blah, blah. If someone needed the the kind of the architectural or the technical side, but we would build features that were two sentences, eight sentences. When it got complicated, it was a couple paragraphs and then a lot of visual. Like the, the ones that were more complicated were like workflows, right? Where we did this huge visual thing. And even that was several pieces of eight and a half by 11 paper taped together on the wall. I remember, I totally that, remember this. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll see if I can find a picture of it. It would be great for, for the show notes. But it was that, and then we just, I think we just talked about what each of the nodes did and kind of tried to define them in like a sentence or two. That was it. And I've been at places when I, because I worked at a credit card company, I worked for the city of Pasadena, the specs for those things would have been 50 pages or 100 pages mm-hmm. for documentation, for a bunch of, for reasons, but not reasons that I ever want to experience again. You know, I don't work in those environments because you just don't need that much when it's two people, three people, four people trying to move fast, trying to ship fast. Yeah, I find these days when I when Taylor and I are talking about a, a somewhat complicated feature, a lot of times I write a couple sentences in the initial ticket and then maybe a note that like, let's discuss this, let's hash it out. A lot of times it's a little different than I originally envisioned. So I'm glad I didn't invest a ton of time describing my grand vision for it only for a quick back and forth to kind of modify that slightly, you know. And then what's nice is a lot of times we'll talk it over and if since Taylor's going to build that part, he will then write the tickets for it and describe, kind of summarize what we talked about. And I think that that's just a helpful device for him to confirm that he understands what we both arrived at and write it up. And I'll skim over that. And if there's something off, then I'll just note it and correct it. But like, that's a great way to just confirm that, like, are we truly on the same page before we start investing developer cycles into it? It's a really nice way to do it and collaborate and have the double check and realize when we are talking about these tickets or this feature description that there's kind of three components to it in my mind. There, there's the user interface, right? How it looks. There's obviously the technical details behind it. And then there's kind of how it acts and operates, the behavior of it. And sometimes you don't even need to describe the user interface. Sometimes there is no user interface. It's just a change in behavior of a scheduling, blah, 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 background, whatever. Sometimes user interface is literally, we're going to add a text box. It's going to be called first name. Like you don't need to say, use these style. We all know what the styles are in our app, right? So like the UI can be complicated, like with workflows where you and I talked a lot, or it can be non-existent. The technical side can sometimes be obvious, sometimes not. Oh, you're going to add a field to the customer table to do this or it's just obvious what we're using. The behavior, that third one, I think is the one that I would spend the most time thinking about, how we got to get that right. And that's usually not obvious, I think. It's often the the most, I think, challenging piece to 
kind of communicate in a way that like, I, I know that it should work this way. Or maybe I don't, maybe I haven't thought of the edge cases. That would be the other thing is I'd throw a ticket in, you'd come back and you'd be like, if we do this, we're going to break everyone's unsubscribe links, you know, or, or some of the 10% of the unsubscribe links. It's like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. So then we'd have to, okay, so maybe we, you know, we change the behavior to not do that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's ultimately the most important is like, it's like, I think that when you call that user experience where it's like, it's not user interface design necessarily, like that's a part of it, but like, what's the journey of the user? What problem are we trying to solve and thinking about it a little more high level? And then the details sort of take care of themselves. If it's something that requires a lot of intricate UI design and the the developer is not that great at interface design, then maybe that's the point you loop in a designer to take care of the like the visual aspects of it. But all of that is sort of downstream from making sure you're on the same page about the, the overall journey and the you know, what's the problem we're solving at a high level. So thanks for the question, Wyatt. I hope that was helpful. Our next question comes from Bavesh, and he's discovered the stair step method of bootstrapping, and he's asking, should I put my main SaaS on the back burner? Our sponsor this week is Lemon.io. Imagine you have an idea that just might change your corner of the world, but you don't have the engineers that you need to bring it to reality. It's hard to find great engineers quickly, especially if you're trying to reduce your burn rate, unless you have a partner who can provide you with more than 1,000 on-demand developers. Vetted, senior, result-oriented, and unstoppably passionate about helping you grow. All that at competitive rates. Sounds too good to be true? Meet Lemon.io. Startups choose Lemon.io because they only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience and strong proven portfolios. Only 1% of candidates who apply get in, so you can be sure they offer only high-quality talent. And if something goes wrong, Lemon.io offers you a swift replacement, so you are essentially hiring with a warranty. To learn more, go to Lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or entire tech team in 48 hours or less. And if you start the process now, you can claim a special discount exclusively for podcast listeners, 15% off the first four weeks of working with your new software developer. Stop burning money, hire developers smarter. Visit Lemon.io slash startups. Hi, Rob. Just got a question. Uh, I've seen your new video on YouTube um, uh, titled, If I Had Start Over, Here's the Three Steps I'd Take to One Million. Now, I've got a question or kind of a dilemma. Uh, I've been working on a SaaS project for a couple of months now. Uh, I've been doing interviews and customer research. I've been able to lock down the research and their pains through interviews, polls, and everything. I'm now working on a prototype for the solution uh, then going to present to them. Following the video, I'm a bit slightly lost. Would you suggest I start with a smaller project, uh, say WordPress plugin or Shopify plugin, rather than continue with the main SaaS project to get my feet wet before I should plow through the main SaaS uh, project? So the let's say the WordPress plugin, I'm estimating five to six months activity, whereas the main SaaS project would be another one to two years to go. What's your thoughts of this? Because I'm a bit lost as to taking your advice in the current situation that I am in with what I should be doing. Thanks, Rob. Well, Mr. Reimer, this is a tough one, right? There's no, there's no right answers on this one, but what, what's your thinking? Like, how would you go about thinking this through? Yeah, I mean, so, so first off, it sounds like he's doing the right things to set himself up for success as best possible. You know, like I hear he's doing uh, 
doing research, doing interviews, talking to people. Those are all great things. The, the one thing that's not totally clear to me, because he's mentioning maybe stepping back and working on a, a WordPress plugin or a Shopify plugin or something like that. And I don't know fully if he's implying that these would be scaled back versions of the SaaS that he's working on, or if it's just kind of a hypothetical alternative path he could take. And I think the answer would kind of vary, because in general, I would say another thing that jumped out to me was mentioned like a one to two year timeline on building the SaaS, the main SaaS. And to me that there's a red flag because that's a really, really long time. You know, I think in this phase, you know, you want to be optimizing for learning. And the trouble is the trap that you could easily fall into as a builder is doing what you do best, building product and not actually learning a bunch uh, from the market or figuring out like, am I on the right track? Is this going to work, right? This is kind of the age old problem that plagues us so often. And I think that's the biggest risk with working on a SaaS where, you know, if he feels pretty confident it's going to take that long, then I would seriously think about either trying to cut scope to shorten that or just think a little bit differently about the process for developing the SaaS or potentially if these kind of plugin ideas are speaking to the same market, the same idea generally that he has, but they're a little bit more scale back and easier to get to market quickly, then I think that would be something really interesting to think about doing to validate. I'm not sure how much I have to add to your analysis, honestly. I feel the same way about it. These are hard decisions, really incomplete information. But when I saw one to two years, I was like, no, no, don't do that. that <laughs> no matter if you're talking to customers or not, that's just it's just too long. Like by the time you're by the time you're a year in, it's just a slog. Like you have to have some type of traction by that point, whether it's customers using it, some money coming in. I'm not saying it needs to be 10K a month, but it just pains me to think of someone working probably nights and weekends, I, I might be guessing. Certainly, it, you wouldn't do one to two years full time. That's a lot of person hours before you get something into the wild. That's that's my assumption too, is that this would be probably something on the side. And I do sometimes hear founders talk about like being okay with it taking a long time because it's just a, a side project. But I think something that's really important to think about is your own your own motivation for the for the idea. And like there's an element to like trying to build some traction in the market even before you launch the thing. Like hopefully you're building an email list and these conversations that you had, you want to be able to follow up pretty quickly with something, at least some form of progress to keep the people that you've talked to interested in the idea. And all of that's gonna going to wane a bit if you're just kind of slowly plodding along, making progress on the side. And I, I would bet that your own motivation for it would wane as well. And then what have you learned from that process? I mean, maybe you've learned some new technology or something if you're experimenting with that while building. But like, have you gotten closer to making progress on the stair step and ultimately becoming independent if that's your goal? And so I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. One thing, if you just want to build something on the side and you're just interested in in doing that for its in its own right, then that's cool. But like, you need to make sure if you if you want to be making progress on building skills to bring products to market, then you're probably going to want a tighter feedback loop. Yeah, to piggyback on what you just said, funded startups fail when they run out of money. Bootstrap startups fail when the founder runs out of motivation. And that's what you're saying is you grind for six to 12 and you just, you start losing. So then by the time you, let's say if you were to launch after 18 months, that's the starting line. You know, you're in a hundred, hundred meter dash and that's like you're 10 meters in. So how do you then have the years it takes to, you know, grow that to replace your full-time income? I think in summary, if you were to just say, Rob, if you were in Bavesh's shoes today 
and you didn't have, you know, any network, any audience, any fund that you couldn't self fund and you haven't had a success, you've never really launched anything. What would I do? That's how I like to think about these things. I would not spend two years on a SaaS app. So, and you said scale it back, which I think is interesting, or I would look at a more step one business. That is what I would do. Yeah, I would have a time, even though I'm a few months in, it's a sunk, there's a sunk cost fallacy there, right? Where you potentially are going to throw good time after bad. But I want to be clear, Babesh, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm telling you what I would do in my shoes, knowing what I know, because these are, these are hard decisions. The information's obviously very incomplete and each of us has to make those for ourselves. So thanks for that question, Babesh. I hope it was helpful. Our next question is from Matt about developer imposter syndrome. Hi Rob, Matt here in the UK. I was just wondering if you've got any advice for um, any developers like me who are struggling to get past the mental barrier of not thinking that anything we develop is going to be worth other people paying for. What do you think, Derek? Did you? I'm curious if you ever felt this. Like, do you remember ever having this type? Because look, we've all had imposter syndrome. Let's let's be clear. But this particular one, where I think no one will pay for something that I'm building. Yeah, I, I do think it's curious the way he worded it. I was trying to trying to think of the same thing. Like, have I can I relate to this feeling? Because for me, I think if there's one area that I'm confident in, it's in as a developer, it's my ability to build a product and take some pain point and solve it with software. And I and I think Matt should probably feel confident in that as well. Like that's uh, this is our craft. You know, this is what we do. Uh, this is what we're good at. And I have zero doubts that that he could build something that is worth paying for that solves, you know, solves a pain for a customer. I think the bigger the bigger thing to be worried about not to not to potentially add to the list of of things you might be stressed about, but like the bigger risk us builders have is like skimping on the other side of it. It's it's the, all the things outside of building the product. It's figuring out how to talk to customers and how to how to uh, reach them and and how to position it in a way that people want to buy it. Like though that's where things get trickier, right? And so I think certainly I experienced that a ton of imposter syndrome around like, am I actually capable of being an entrepreneur in the full sense of like taking something to market and selling it and being a, putting a salesperson hat on when I need to and putting a marketer hat on when I need to. Like those are all, those are all skills that are pretty far outside of the, the builder developer skill set that I think a lot of us developers take pride in, in um, honing. I guess if I had a word of encouragement, it's like, Try to foster that growth mindset. Recognize that like these are all just skill sets. They're learnable. There's a lot out there. So there's a lot of things to to study. There's podcasts to listen to. There's books to read. Um, but a lot of your best learning is going to come from doing. And so that's the other thing. It's like, well, what's the what's the most effective way to to get past feeling like I can't do it is by proving to yourself that you can. You know, and I think that's where that's the power of the stair step approach. Right, is getting getting small wins to validate to yourself that like, oh, I, I actually can do these things. And yeah, it's really difficult to build a SaaS app out of the gate and have all of those those hundred variables that you have to get dialed in just right. Like getting them all dialed in right out of the gate is incredibly difficult. And so that's where that's where there's a lot of value in in gradually building up your skill set and convincing yourself that no, no, I can do this. And I'm confident that anyone who puts their mind to it can. I am as well. I mean at bootstrapping especially is just such such a great equalizer. It's such a platform that does the tool solve a problem, 
that's worth paying for, then people will pay for it. And they usually don't care who you are in most cases. You know, they don't care where you're from and they don't care about your background. They just care that this tool solves this problem. And so I love the advice you've given Matt. I think the, the, the thing that I would add to it is it sounds like it is maybe a deeper, I say this as someone with experience of this, of maybe a lack of self-confidence. And I remember feeling, especially in my 20s, feeling very like, I don't know if I can do this stuff. I don't know if I'm cut out for insert anything, you know, insert anything entrepreneurial because I didn't know any entrepreneurs, none in my family. The only business owner I know was the guy my dad worked for. Like there was just no history there of this is possible. I especially hadn't seen it in software, especially hadn't seen it in anything except Silicon Valley raising funding because I grew up in the East Bay area. And so it took me some, I'll say personal work, like working through that on my own. I went to therapy about a bunch of stuff, but that was one of the things was like, am I cut out to do this? Is it, and, and you'll, you'll find out you have a lot, all of us have limiting beliefs based on our upbringing, you know, upbringing, or there's a bunch of different reasons why these things happen, but they're complete blindsides right? That you just don't see. And I, this one feels like that to me. And so whether it's a, a therapist or whether it's a mastermind group or a co-founder or just someone who's in your corner and willing to think this through with you, I think that's what worked for me. I'll put it that way. And it wasn't Sherry. It wasn't my wife who, who helped me get through this. It, ha- it was a third party, right? Even though my wife is a psychologist, the irony runs deep, but, but that, that's not what helped me. And it was, a, it was having some successes along the way as I stair-stepped up. I think that's our third shout out to it. But no, it was. It was little things where I was like, oh, .NET invoice. Oh, now I'm making $900 a month on this, this little downloadable invoicing software, right? That was what convinced me that I could build something people were willing to pay for because they paid me for it. <laughs> and then I, that proved it. And I was like, oh, well, if it could be 900, it could probably be 9,000. Like, couldn't it? Right? So that was like the whole, and then the first dollar you make online is amazing. And then you figure out how do you make two? And, and then how do you make 2,000? The other thing I would say, Matt, is if you're not in a mastermind group, <laughs> that was another game changer for me. Um, both the mastermind with you, Derek, and, and Phil back in Fresno, and then another mastermind with Ruben and, and another, another person that's been remote for years and years. Those were less about building up my confidence because by the, actually by the time we were in masterminds, I was like, I was doing stuff and I was pretty you know confident I could do it. But you have ups and downs even then. And especially if you have this, this whether it's a lack of self-confidence or latent belief that people aren't going to buy it, it's going to rear its head in different ways, month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year. That's going to come back. You're never going to be through it. And so having folks around you who are in it for the long term with you, who can help identify that. And as you talk through it, be like, you know what, man, I'm going to call you. That's bull. Like, that's actually not true. That's, that's this other voice talking that is, is not that voice is not welcome here because it's just not helpful. And so I think having some a person or a couple people in your corner who can help sanity check, we all have thoughts and I've gotten better at it. I think everyone does, but you get better at identifying, huh, that thought today is because I'm really tired or I'm really depressed because there hasn't been sunlight for five days. And that thought about this not working or me not being good enough is really an external factor. So don't believe it today. But if I feel this in a month, Maybe that's true. And so I give myself time and space to have these negative thoughts and not dwell on them, right? And if they keep coming back, then I figure out other ways to handle them. Yeah, that's the community piece is really important because we pour so much of ourselves into our endeavors, especially when you're kind of staking your career on it, it feels like at times, you know, like, so it, it 
takes a lot of emotional energy for sure. And when something doesn't work, it's so easy to come to the conclusion that I'm just not good enough or not capable. When a lot of times the answer is like, well, maybe there are some some things outside of your control that affected that, or maybe there was a tactical error, or maybe there's just something you haven't thought about, some playbook that you could try running, you know, like there's usually other ways to problem solve. And it's basically never that I'm a fundamentally flawed person incapable of getting past it. It's just, you need other people in your corner who can have a different perspective and uh, help assure you that uh, it's just something to work through. It's not that you're incapable. Yeah. And if you never have these thoughts, then you're a robot. Right. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. everyone I know, everyone I know who I like as a human being has these thoughts. There are probably people that are so confident in themselves. It's called narcissism, where you never have these doubts. And I don't hang out with those kind of people. I've met them and they are hard to be around because they are just so in their own, in their own world. Derek Reimer, you are Derek Reimer on Twitter. Are you still on Twitter? I am still on Twitter these days. Yeah, it's getting in, getting to be an interesting place. But yeah, it's a question we have to ask. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much, man. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show. I'm sure the audience uh, really appreciates your insights. It was a blast as always. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Derek for joining me today, and thank you for joining me this week and every week as we dive into topics for ambitious, bootstrapped, and mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders about building, launching, and growing startups. I hope the new year has been amazing for you so far. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 643. Is, do you not use Chrome anymore? I use Firefox. I've just used it as my... Have you always used Firefox? I think I started like four years ago or something. Yeah. Okay. What made you switch? Honestly, it was... At one point, there was an update, like a Mac update that broke font rendering. For mm. like... Like it made the um, letter spacing all tight. <laughs> and like, I think it was a bug that got fixed in like... Took like two months or something for it to get fixed. But it was messing with my uh, like I I'm, when I'm paying attention to pixels so closely, it like really messes with my uh, yeah design stuff. That's interesting. So if Google wanted, or I'm sorry, if Apple wanted to totally screw Chrome's market share, they could just yep. do that every couple months accidentally. <laughs> yeah, what a trip. I hadn't even thought about it, but only for like really yeah. like picky UI people, right? Right. Because I didn't notice. Probably, probably most people didn't <laughs> notice. Didn't, it was you know, like. Well, maybe it was early stages of Savvy Cal. I can't remember which app it was where I was like really like getting core patterns built out and like paying a lot of attention to the spacing of toolbars, nav bars, and it like all looked extremely jacked up. So I was like, correct it. Yeah, yeah that makes it tough. And then Firefox, it's been it's been actually nice. Like the the UI used to be kind of ugly, and it's gotten much more Chrome like, and mm-hmm. they have like syncing between phone and 
desktop. Like they've they've caught up on a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's the big thing for me. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. All the bookmarks I have, and I remember years ago when you like have to transfer them manually to export and then import. I just love. I mean, I know they have all yeah. my <laughs> data because I have to log in, and, yeah. but I don't care. It's so much better when I get on a new machine. I'm like brand new Mac. I install a few apps. I log into Dropbox. I log into Google Chrome, and it's yeah. It's not much. It's like oh, I got to get my FTP. You know, I have four or five FT, SFTP things. I got to move over, but it's compared to the old days when I'd spend eight or ten hours. Literally, you know, a full work day just getting a machine set up. I know. So I know. Nice. Yeah. Now these days I'm like relying almost exclusively on like all the Apple migration stuff that's built in, like just do it for me, you know? <laughs> and it like generally works out fine. The one thing I didn't do, I just upgraded my phone finally and uh, forgot that Google Authenticator doesn't transfer over. Yeah, that is rough. And you know what, dude? I actually switched away from Google Authenticator to LastPass Authenticator because of that, because it does. And I don't know who, I, some of them do and some don't. Just I don't care which you do, but pick one that does, because that, that happened to me once. 1Password has more and more of like support for one-time password yeah. stuff, and it's magical when it automatically inserts the, you know, the one-time password. So it's a, like I have a few, obviously some Google accounts and stuff were in there, and I think I'm just, I'm banking on being able to use the recovery codes when... Yeah. When I need to. When you need them. Ah, that's such a bummer. That is still, that's surprising that Google is doing that, A. Yeah. And B, there are just still a few edge cases in this yeah. whole get a, get a new phone, get a new laptop thing where that's, and I don't think you can get them back once you lose it. No, I don't think so. I mean, it must be, it must be baked in, intertwined with the fingerprint of the device or yeah. something. Like for, there's something about yeah. it that just will not transfer. But like Apple doesn't warn you about that. So they're like, Cool, you got a new phone. You want us to migrate all the stuff yep. over? Yeah, let's do it. And then it finishes and it's like, we're done. Should we wipe this? And I'm like, yeah, wipe it, man. Yep. <laughs> do <That's> it. Terrible. <laughs> Such a bummer. Uh, 